0: Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson.
1: Hey, hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. So happy you're tuning in. Hope you're faring well during this crazy time really excited for you to listen to this conversation today. I had with CEO Michael Sugar. Michael Sugar is an American film and television producer. He's the CEO and principal at his company called Sugar 23. He's best known for the producing and winning an Academy Award for Best Picture as the producer for Spotlight, a movie in 2015. About the uh, true story from the Boston Globe, kind of uncovering the story of the uh, Catholic uh, priest scandal. Had Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams in it. Great movie. He's also known for producing, being an executive producer and producing some great series on Netflix, which I'm a huge fan of. The OA, which my kids absolutely love, got me to watch, and I'm a big fan of as well. Maniac, which was a great one too. That had Emma Stone and Jonah Hill in it. 13 Reason Why was just a smash success. He was behind that as well. And I really enjoyed talking with him. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, not only his background, but his kind of what made him up as as a leader, and it was interesting getting his perspective from the entertainment industry, someone from Hollywood, someone that's always wanted to make movies his entire life, tell great stories. And we talked about a theme that we that that is prevalent on this show: is tenacity. Time and time again, this keeps coming up. That it's it's about never quitting, and he gives a great story, an example of how he's been tenacious even since he was a kid. But there's also that humanity side of doing the right thing, the humility side. And I've always stated the leadership that we're trying to gain here, the leadership that we're trying to follow, I'm trying to model in my own life on a day-to-day basis, is have that intensity of will, right? The creation to do something, that intensity to get something done and have that tenacity. But it's coupled with that humble, teachable spirit. And where that Venn diagram intersects that middle, that's the sweet spot. And Michael's one of those guys. He seems like he's constantly trying... To do the right thing. We talk about culture. We talk about how, you know, he says one of his big things, like, look, there's no glass ceiling here at his organization. He wants everybody to walk away making sure that we're doing this for a purpose, that we're doing this to make sure that we're leaving significant and productive and happy lives. And I just loved this conversation. I could have talked to him for hours, but you're really going to enjoy it. And uh, I think he's one of the good ones uh, doing great things with the type of work that he's producing on the entertainment front, but also behind the scenes. It's a great kind of inside baseball look at the entertainment industry, and he's one of those individuals that I think is doing the right thing. Hey, this show is brought to you by my services. I know it's crazy time out there, and look around, and speaking services are getting canceled all over, but there's one thing that we can do is we can train virtually from home. I've done that for the past three years. I've taken 30-plus organizations through my Legacy Leader Blueprint course, It's a course that has 20 videos broken up into four modules that lays the path on how to be an effective leader. So if you're trying to get your team to understand the concepts of leadership, this course, Legacy Leader Blueprint, is perfect. We can do it online. In fact, my first client was a listener from Perth, Australia, and I'm here in the middle of the United States, and we would conduct these training sessions. Again, these 20 videos, four modules, I would have the individuals watch, take two weeks to watch one module. For example, the first module on the leadership fundamentals, get them two weeks to watch it because they're busy. They got things going on, but they can watch those modules. And then inside those two weeks, I would get with them virtually for an hour and a half. We would facilitate and discuss what they just learned. We do that four times. $500 a seat. So it doesn't break the bank if it's an organization from a leadership training perspective. And we can do it virtually. So using Zoom and the technology that everybody's crazy about and during these kind of isolated times, it's a perfect opportunity to keep your team members engaged talking about leadership learning how to create a culture of leadership in your organization so if you want to learn more reach out to me at dose of leadership.com fill out the contact form or email me directly richard at dose of leadership.com and we can talk about how i can help your organization create a culture of decentralized leadership all right thanks for tuning in thanks for being a supporter of the show and now let's get on with our conversation with michael sugar the ceo and principal of sugar 23 here on dose of leadership Michael, what a thrill to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership.
0: Thanks for having me. It's a, This is my first ever podcast as a guest. I've listened to your podcast many times. Oh, that's awesome. It, well, I'm, I'm a rookie, so well, the, I, the pressure is on.
1: Yeah, well, I think you're the first television and movie producer I've had on, so it's a first for both of us. I've always been fascinated by Great. that business. I love media production. I love films. I love, I love Netflix. I, I can binge watch. I think media is... In a lot of ways, it's, it's like the golden age of television. What do you think? I'm kind of curious what you think.
0: Well, I mean, I think it certainly is, especially right now as we sit at home and everyone can't <laughs> right. leave their, their houses. Um, yeah, I would call it the uh, platinum age. But I think what, what happened was that the price of going to the movies and the need for a social uh, shared experience eliminated a lot of movies. Um, that would normally play in the, in the, in the cinemas. So what was left was the big tentpole movies and, and the shared experience, uh, other than the Avengers and big giant movies migrated to television. And so, uh, I think what, what happened there was that the storytellers also followed because that's where the opportunities were and that's where the money was. And, uh, so it, it was just sort of a normal cycle into a medium that, um, looked very different years ago than it does now. I mean, 10 years ago, you almost never saw the kinds of filmmakers that would win Oscars directing television. There were television directors and there were film directors. And now, and same with movie stars, right? There's, There was never really movie stars on television. There were movie stars that came from television, like George Clooney, but you would have never imagined that Meryl Streep and Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston and Steve Carell would would be excited about doing television.
1: That's right. Now they are. I mean, you think back to the 70s, you know, when you'd watch The Love Boat and you'd see kind of the cavalcade of all the current TV stars on this week's episode, you know, and you're right. There was hardly any cross-pollination, if you will. You know, if there were uh, a movie star, they were a former movie star that's kind of migrated to television, someone that was kind of senior in their age or something. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, I think there's just so many great... There's so much great content out there. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's almost overwhelming to date and try to choose, you know? I mean, I, I sit there finding myself scrolling yeah, more than I do devil. actually. Yeah, it's that's the challenge, I guess. But how does, I'm curious, how do you get started in that? I mean, that's what's so interesting to me. What was your kind of, um, take me a little bit back to your background when you were a kid in high school, college, did you think you would be doing this? You know, I did.
0: I always wanted to make movies. It was something that I connected to as a kid. Uh, my folks were both in different aspect of the entertainment industry, um, which turned out not to be as helpful to me as I would have hoped. But, <laughs> right. um, but nevertheless, I was exposed to it and the vocabulary of the business from an early age and aspired to to be a storyteller. I went to school. I grew up in Los Angeles and I went uh, to college back east at Brandeis University after uh, two years in an international school uh, called the United World College, which for me was really transformative and. What was interesting about that school was um, we had students from about 150 countries, and most of them were there because they had a, an eye towards changing the world. And now most of my former classmates are working in uh, politics or philanthropy or at the you know, World Health Organization. And I always wanted to tell stories and felt that um, that was my way of making an impact on the world. Um, and, and so for me, that was... It was it was always in the cards for me.
1: Yeah, it, it seems like all the the to me the theme, and this is as an outsider looking in and kind of a consumer of it, and, and never really understanding how one becomes a producer. But it does seem though that the ones that have the lasting power, be it an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, they always go to the storytelling side of it. And I guess that's kind of maybe from your end, it's kind of like no, well, no duh, but there is something to that. It seems like the ones that have the staying power are more concerned about the storytelling than, say, the fame or the financial prospects that come from that. Does that that resonate with you? Does that make any sense?
0: I mean, look, I I think people that are self-aware are very quick to say they're not driven by the business. Um, And I think there's a part of it that's true. I think a lot of us want to make a living and a good living doing it. Sure. Uh, The thing that's Challenging about the entertainment business is unlike most businesses that I can think of. There's no proportionate relationship between hard work and success. Uh, you can be, you can, and that's also because there's no particular lane or strategy to succeed within the entertainment business, at least on the creative side. Um, there's no, there's no rule book. There's no promotions into being a producer. You, you just have to uh, there, or there is no specific path, I should say, into that. Um, so I think while people are, are, are not entirely driven by money, and that's a good thing, I think that the, 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 the more that people spend time in the entertainment industry and the more successful they become, the more they also become aware that there is easier ways to make a living. <laughs> right. um, and, and so you really have to love storytelling and you have to love connecting with people to some degree. And of course, storytelling is you know, such a basic human thing. I mean, I have a three-year-old, and we read him stories every day, and we have since, you know, he was uh, three months old, maybe younger. And we all love stories. And so for us I – and mean, I think politics is storytelling, and I think yeah. finance is storytelling. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, it's just a different kind of story.
1: Yeah, it raises – I was thinking about that when you, your answer there. That, I mean, I guess that's why it's so – maybe it's so fascinating just for the general public, and I never really thought of it this way, because it is such a brutal – It is such a brutal profession. To your point, there's no temper like if someone entered – I mean, life is unpredictable in so many fronts. But you're right. If I go in and get a business degree and go to a corporation, there is kind of a predictable, quasi-predictable path. In the entertainment industry, you're right. It is so brutal – And to your point, I think that's what highlights when I like like looking at um, some of the people that have made it and hearing their stories, just the level of tenacity that is required to stay in the business for a long time, because it will chew you up and spit you out. And if you're not tenacious, you won't survive. So it seems like everybody that kind of... Yeah, I think that's true. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: Well, I was going to share a story. So when I was 12 years old, I read a book called A Separate Peace by John Knowles in seventh grade. And uh, it was a wonderful book that... I, I fell in love with, and I think for many, many years it's been required reading in a lot of schools, country. And I, I wanted to make a movie, and I was twelve. And I said to my father, who knew more about the movie business than I did, I want to make, I want to make this movie. And he said, Well, okay. You have to find out who has the rights. So I found out that Paramount had the rights because they had made the original version of the film. And I wrote a letter on in handwriting on college ruled paper, saying, Hey, Paramount. I'm Michael and I'm 12 and I want to make this movie. And of course I didn't hear anything back a year later. My dad said, what, what happened with your movie? And I said, well, they never wrote me back. And he said, well, that, that's uh, that's pretty par for the course. What are you going to do about it? So I wrote another letter. I said, I'm 13 now and uh, I would love to make this movie. And they didn't write back. And then it became a bit of a joke on my birthday. Every year I wrote a letter to Paramount and over the years, I started becoming a bit more savvy about who to write it to, and I moved from, you know, college ruled paper to a typer, and then I went to college, and I still did it. I started writing, Dear Paramount, I have a new girlfriend. Dear Paramount, I have the, you know, really, it was just a thing, and finally, when I was in law school, I figured out that I should write a letter to Business Affairs, and I did, and they wrote me back, and then... Uh, they gave me the opportunity to come in and pitch to them. And I did. And it was the first movie that I ended up making. So it was 13 years (laughs) in the making, but it really does speak to the need to stick with it.
1: Yeah. I love that story. I think if sometimes people ask me after having 400 of these conversations over the last seven years, what, what sticks out? What have you learned? And that is the overriding theme that everybody talks about that it's so often it's less about the talent. It's almost like the talent is a given piece for the most part. You got to be good at something. But the one that, that strives, it's its not the one that's usually more talented. It's the one that was more tenacious. That tenacity is what rules the day and what, what drives lives of significance and success. And um, I do believe that. And I think that, guy, you just look at the industry and all those great stories and like, in, in this, there are some, I guess, true overnight Successes the rare, but it, even the ones that are labeled overnight successes, there's usually years, if not decades, of the ten thousand hours. Right? Is that true from what you've seen?
0: Yeah, I would say more often than not, for sure, that's the case. Um, yeah. there are overnight transformations. Yeah, that's a good uh, But it. I don't think that. But I don't think. I mean, for me, I was uh, my my career was on a very solid trajectory and it was growing and moving forward. But you know. The day I won an Academy Award, you know, my, my credibility, my um, notoriety in the entertainment industry was essentially more. So overnight, I was in a different position, but, but there were other markers along the way that gave me those spikes. I sort of look at it like the stock market, right? You, you, you're going to get beaten down. You're going to have up days, down days. Some days are going to be really bad. Some days are going to be really good. But every year, if you just keep at it, you're gonna be ahead. Yeah, hopefully. Now I'm looking at it today, and you know who knows. But (laughs) it
1: does. But what? So, so tell me a little bit about your mindset then, because obviously you've had this kind of ingrained in you. That example you gave with your story, with your father—what a great example. Okay, now what are you gonna do, right? So he knew what he was trying to teach you. So tell me a little bit about your influencers, your mentors, and maybe even some of your personal habits, uh, and, and even kind of that describes your mindset. And what is your mindset, I guess, on a daily day basis? I think that – well, that's a lot of questions. I know. That was a mouthful. Uh, you're good at your job. <laughs> um, let's break it down.
0: So I think the the, the mentors, I, I didn't have a ton. Um, my father and, and mother were certainly mentors as parents can be, and because they were both in the entertainment industry, they added a layer um, of, of – um, information and education in that process for me. But really, I think the the mentorship that you get from your parents when it's at its best is just the humanity and values that are instilled, which for me has been a big driver in my professional habits, which is that, you know, to to make a reputation of doing the right thing by people and to make a reputation of being kind when others are not, I think is a really helpful way to approach it. Um, I, I remember... It was, a, it was a moment, like 15 years ago, I was in Las Vegas playing poker, and this was when everybody was playing poker. And I was sitting at the table, and I realized that you know I had a bit more money than most people at the table, and I was playing for fun. Some people were playing for their rent, and so I started to tell people the truth about what I had in my hand. So if I had a, a hand that was definitely going to beat somebody that I thought was nice and really needed the money, I would say to the guy, Hey man, I got, I got you beat. I got two aces here. Um, you should fold. And then he would raise me. And when I was bluffing, I told everybody I was bluffing and they should call and they would fold. And all night I kept telling the truth and all night I kept winning. It was the biggest <laughs> night I'd ever had playing poker.
1: That is insane. And
0: I, as I walked away from it, I was thinking, wow, like in a business that is full of liars <laughs> right. and bad behavior and, and people you can't trust, that the truth is actually power. And it, it wasn't that I had not done acted that way throughout my career up to that point, but it really solidified in me this sense that you can be a good person and a good actor and, and kind and thoughtful and benevolent and still be successful. Even in a business where not everyone achieves their success that way,
1: that's such a great story and a great example because you're right because even you look at big business or even big entertainment, it is littered, and there are plenty of stories both in pop culture and in truth of of you know you're basically signing the, the contract with the devil, and we all know what happens right the whole star's born story type thing and and or you know if you sell your soul to the devil type thing, but you're right I, and that's why I love finding because there are so many great examples to your point that people never get highlighted people that are doing the right thing and what i like to call making the campsite better than they found it because and, and they feel that that's their obligation but they never get highlighted i don't know maybe it's because we're just as human beings we kind of think if it bleeds it leads type mentality right and that's what sells the papers and the and the clicks and this stay in tune to the tv but i i love that you said that because you, you know the general perception of the entertainment industry is is one that's kind of run by people with not the right kind of ethical standards but to your point like i said there's probably i don't know it's probably more than we i tend to think there's more good than than bad i don't know what do you think
0: in general i think so too and i also feel like uh you know if you look for the best in people you find that yeah uh, I will say that wh- why I think behavior is particularly bad in the entertainment industry, and and then I, by that I mean the music industry, which is notoriously bad, and 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 other businesses within the entertainment industry, is that like I said earlier, there's no proportionate relationship between hard work and success. So there are different measures and different rewards of success, like invitations to the right parties and access to the right clubs and things like that, which create validators for folks. And it brings out some bad behavior because it's not necessarily connected to the work. Um, And also because it, you know, it beats you down for so long, like when you're pledging a fraternity, that when you actually succeed, you sometimes forget that you don't have to continue to beat down others. So I think there's a, I think that's, there's a whole psychology. It's a, probably a completely different podcast we could talk about. But um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the psychology of, our, of my industry, and uh, there's a lot of psychology. So much of it is driven by it.
1: Yeah, it's almost like – well, and I think it speaks to the broader sense of, of just kind of humanity psychology. Of, and I think this is what the big lie is, is that we, we base our self-worth on – what other people think about us and what we accomplish. And that's that's that can lead to all the dangerous path. In the entertainment industry, it just it's especially when you, you know, you you have to be somewhat of a narcissist to be somewhat successful. I mean, we're all narcissists to a degree, but if you can buy into that lie, that's why you see all those kind of you know, the one the kind of the crash and burn uh stories as opposed to the ones that have that sustainability, right? And we know we all know who those actors, producers, and directors are that have that Just steady as they go, and I think it speaks to that at some point that you can't – I guess what I was trying to say with this is that you can't have your self-worth based on what you accomplish and what other people think of you because that's not sustainable. That will eventually take you down a dark path. So somehow you have to get your self-worth grounded in something else besides what you do. Does that make sense?
0: Well, of course. It makes perfect sense because also I think it's not limited to my business. The more successful one becomes, (laughs) the less – uh, the less likable they also become to, to others <laughs> right. just, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason. So if you're basing your self-worth on that validation, it's fleeting. For sure. Although I still care what everyone thinks and I stay up late at night making sure everybody likes me.
1: I know. We all do. I mean, it's not like I can sit there and I say that and I certainly fall victim to it. But I think, you know, having that awareness, right, when you're doing it is probably more than half the battle. Because we all want to be liked yeah. and we all want to do things that get approval, and it's scary. And that's why I think for, for anybody, and that's why I have so much uh, reverence for anybody, entrepreneurs or creatives and artists that put something out there, because it, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to do that. You know, whether you're writing something or putting, say, here's this, what do you guys think? And um, even my little podcast, I mean, it was a huge, psychologically, I had to get used to the criticism and and stop searching for just the praise to make me feel validated, right? Well,
0: but I'd love to take a moment just to tell you that your podcast is phenomenal. Ah. And all your success is well-deserved. And it's just the beginning for you. Oh. And I think I speak for everyone who's listening
1: Wow, when I say that. Thank you. That's so nice of you. I, I really appreciate that feedback. Tell me a little bit about uh, the formation of Sugar23 and, and some of your past experiences. I mean, you've, you've, you've worked for other companies, obviously. Tell me a little bit about... About that. It's yeah, no, in I've,
0: I've, worked in, I've worked for a few companies over the years. I spent 15 years prior to starting the current company with a company called Anonymous Content, which is one of the leading uh, management and film and television production companies in the world. And I spent 15 years there, really starting at the very bottom. And by the end of it was, you know, one of the managing partners of the company. And when we had, uh, we sold a large portion of the, the company a few years ago, and I spun out uh, sugar twenty three and subsequently completely uh spun it out as my own entity um, and and so we it was it was I really didn't want to put my name in the in the company name, but I wanted people to know that it was still me because so many folks i think um, associated me with anonymous content so it was a strategic uh decision at the advice of my investors really and 23 is my lucky number.
1: So we'll, I like it and we'll then see if it plays out. So I guess I'm curious too. Did you I talked a lot I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs on the show and a the theme that always kind of comes up is okay, they they started this, they they're kind of they've gone completely on their own. Um, maybe they've always been that way, maybe they worked for a corporation and worked their way up kind of like what you just described, now they 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 got their own entity. At some point, they've all kind of said that if we're going to scale this thing, if we're really going to take it to the heights that I really want it to, I really got to understand leadership. And when they went into it, they didn't know that it was kind of like it kind of slapped them in the face. Like something happened where they like an epiphany happened or some kind of splat moment where they said, Oh my God, I got to learn how to become a better leader. Has that ever happened to you?
0: It happens to me every day. And I think if you're not asking that question as a leader every day, then you're probably not maximizing your role as a leader. Um, I didn't, I knew that what I was going to try to accomplish with this company was going to require an execution of a, of a big vision from a lot of people. And, uh, what I didn't know, I, I, I knew intellectually that I was going to be a CEO and that was a different, you know, and, and my company is bigger than film and television production, So we can talk about that later, but I knew that I was going to have to rise to the challenge. I, I think I don't remember where I read it. Maybe it was in it was in some book that I read that said that, you know, there's no real training for a CEO until you're actually doing it. And I think that has proven to be very true for me. Um so I'm in a constant love affair with learning here and and I make a lot of mistakes and that's okay. I, I don't mind I I'm humble enough to admit when I've made the mistakes. I, I seek counsel when I don't know the answer and and I'm learning. Yeah. And I'm having fun learning.
1: I sense that about you. It seems like and i I think what the the type of leadership that I kind of gravitate towards and the kind of leader that I, I wanna be, both personally and professionally, is I have this intensity of will and it sounds like obviously you do too. You have this this calling, this passion, this burning, whatever you want to call it. But it's combined with this um Humble, teachable spirit, and I think where that Venn diagram intersects, that's the sweet spot. And you seem like that kind of guy to me, just based on our, you know, only knowing you here for the last thirty, forty minutes. But it seems like that way to me. Um, how do you? How does that resonate with you when you hear me say that?
0: Well, it, I, I'm glad you feel that way because I aspire to that. I don't know that I always succeed, but one of the things that I, I say all the time, and any of my colleagues who will listen to this will roll their eyes because they know what I'm about to say. I tell everybody in every meeting that happiness matters, that the, ex- the quality of the experience matters more to me than the result of the experience. And that, from having been in work environments that were toxic and having been in experiences that were joyless. I mean, that's one thing that, that I find a lot of successful people uh, are not happy and it's, it's, it's not because, you know, the proverbial money doesn't make you happy. It's not that calculus. It's the calculus that in order to stay successful, you have to continue constantly thinking about the next step, which I think isn't true. I think you have to, you have to also think about the current step and you have to enjoy those moments, those success, because uh, if you don't, then you forget why you're doing it. And so for me, you know, I think what I really try to instill in, in all of my colleagues and, and everybody I've said it so many times that anyone I've done business with will, will, will vouch for me. I always say it in every meeting. I'm only interested at this point in my career in doing things that are fulfilling. There's, you say there's making a living and making a life and they need to be juxtaposed at all times.
1: I love that. I think I, that really resonates with me because I, I, I think and you just kind of answered it there, or said it there. And when you said it, it's all about the happiness piece. I, th- I, I think what you mean is deeper than that. I think it's, and you just said it. It's about, it's the difference between when I ask somebody, do you want to lead a successful life or do you want to lead a significant life? It's subtly, subtly, but very powerfully different, right? And that's what I think you're trying to say. With, I, I the reason why we're here is to make the place better than we found it. And we're doing that through this production company and creating great stories that are meaningful and the work is meaningful and we treat each other with respect and all that other stuff, right? That's what you're trying to... I love that, right? Did I hit that? Is that right, what what I said? You did.
0: I mean, look, I want to... Just in case my investors are listening, I want them to know that I really do want to make a successful company as well as a significant one. But it is very much... I don't think that they're disconnected. I, I think they're... Integrally connected. I, I, I agree. I think that yeah. It, yeah. I don't. So I agree for with me, you. you know, sorry.
1: Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say I agree with you. I don't think that we're all here to have the experience be, you know, cotton candy and rainbows. That's what I mean about significance. Because sometimes significance does mean long hours, sacrifice, and it is about, you know, to your point, making a profit. Because the profit allows us to continue to make significant things. Right. This isn't a, a, a charitable event. Well, that's
0: exactly right. I mean, when I made when I made Spotlight. Um, which was eight years uh, in the making. I, I think if you, took, if you took all of the uh, hours that I spent on it, um, I probably made like three, maybe a one cent per hour. I mean, I made no money on it. Um, obviously, it produced success for, for me and for my company because we won the Academy Award and it was significant uh, from an entertainment business standpoint. But it was also impactful in the world. You know, I was able to, you know, with with my colleagues on that movie, sit in front of so many hundreds of people who came to us and said this movie gave us the courage to tell our truth. And I think there was significant changes in the Catholic Church made by it. And uh, I feel like that impacts, you know, so much more lasting. But also, it it has created success for me in other ways because. We have a book imprint, and you know journalists and politicians—they want us to tell their stories. And we have uh, new all the movies and, and and TV shows that we try to we try to buy. The writers are want to be with people that told that story. So, you know, the 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 success of an individual achievement is not only measured by the rewards of that achievement, right? There's a there's a real Ongoing, lasting effect.
1: Yeah, that was great. What was great about Spotlight? It seemed like the right movie at the right time. It was kind of almost the 2010s, all the presidents' men, in a in a way, right? I mean, I'm, I'm 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 sorry if that comparison's been made many times over, but it did seem like it was at the right place at the right time, in terms of the significance of what it was trying to not only shed the light or peel the layers back on a great story that many may not have understood at that level, but um, I don't know, it just seemed like, when you went into it, did you did you think that, I mean, I guess what I'm saying, what is, was it like when you realized you were up for an Academy Award? Was it a shock, a surprise, or was that kind of the goal eight years going in?
0: It was definitely not the goal, and along the way, I would have never expected it to have the attention that it did. And I think you're right, it was the right place at the right time. I'm not even sure it was the best movie of the year, but I think it was it was released at a time when there was such a craving and thirst for institutional accountability and for deep dive journalism and conversations about keeping people in check. Uh, And, and I think that that created a a movement towards uh, embracing this film. And then what happened was, you know, I I never thought it was going to be in contention when it was in contention. I never thought we would win. And then people started anointing us as the winner uh, for a long time. And, then you start thinking about it. And, you know, anyone who says, ah, it's an honor just to be nominated are are they lying to you? I mean, it is an honor, but it's not all they want. And, um, and when you, when you get really close to it, it, it actually became pressure. It became something very different. Um, it was, it was emotional and heavy and, and challenging and exhausting and, um, but it was obviously life changing and and so wonderful and and really it was great because it put the movie on a more global scale which enabled more survivors of abuse to you know be heard and found and protected so yeah win win for everybody
1: absolutely what kind of we we touched on it a little bit what kind of culture uh, you said you want everybody to kind of have this make sure that we're here you know um, striving towards success happiness significance whatever you want to call it The culture, you're being very intentional about that culture. So at what point, I mean, you seem like that is very important to you to be intentional about creating a workplace. That is a great place to come to, you know? I mean, we've all woke up and stared at the ceiling going, I don't want to go to work today because of that place is so bad. But um, what is it for you?
0: I, I think it's very, it's a fool's errand for a CEO to think that he or she can create a culture. Because by definition, a culture is not created by one person. It's created by a population. And so what I try to do is create the starting point and the end point, which is you come to work happy and you leave work happy. In between, I I seek guidance from the people that inform the culture. And so what I think the consensus usually is, is we want to be heard. We want to be respected. We want to be unlimited. And so I strive to try to create for my team as much runway as possible to do what makes them happy and, and, and passionate while still doing the task that they're you know hired to do. And I think most people do their task better when they feel like it's not just a task. Yeah. So I, I when we moved into our new corporate headquarters, I put in every, on every desk, uh, I just wrote a note, uh, to everybody. And I just wrote, there is no glass ceiling here, and I just won. And most of my, it's nice. Most of my colleagues have that note somewhere, either still on their desk or on their wall, and and that that makes me so happy when I see it when I walk into someone's office because I, that is why people are excited. And I think anybody who's listening would know that going to an environment to work, which isn't joyful in some way and isn't fulfilling and full of respect is a terrible way to spend your day and i just don't want anyone i don't want anyone doing that under my roof
1: is that your primary job you think as a ceo it is to be that kind of communicator of this kind of vision that some might even think impossible do you think that is your primary job
0: no, my primary job is to run a profitable business, right? So so I, I would love to be idealistic about it. Um, I think my primary uh, expenditure of time is is that, but my primary job is to run a business that will succeed, because if I can't do that, then all the people can't be paid, and it doesn't matter what culture I've created. Um, but but I think it's connected. Right. If, if 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 my primary job is to run a successful business, then the parts of the machine have to be optimal at all times. And so, you know, it is it is part and parcel to that. And so I'm conscious of it. And, you know, sometimes I think maybe too conscious of it as well, because, um, you know, I, I, I think people are people are resilient and able to survive without being coddled. And, you know, I'm a caretaker. My parents fought a lot. Um, you know, so I was always the caretaker and, and, uh, and it's, it's stuck with me even now, but I I try to, I try to, you know, focus on the business as much as possible, but make sure that people are empowered at all times.
1: Yeah. I didn't mean to insinuate that. Maybe that to me, I guess from where I was coming from was that that's kind of what you just said is kind of a given as your role. I mean, it is, that is like the, the given part is that to run a profitable business, but I think you're right. They are connected. I think as As evidenced by, you said, taking up most of your time, I think that's an investment of time that's well spent, in my opinion, because I think sometimes, and I guess that's what I meant about, it's kind of like me that I'm a pilot for American Airlines, it's a given that I know how to fly the plane in the worst of conditions, that's what I'm tasked to do. But yeah, can, but you have
0: to train to be a
1: pilot. I don't get, I don't think <laughs> CEOs true. get training. No, I they think don't. The there's, challenge. there's no simulator that you can hop into and and run through crisis scenarios, right? And black swan events like COVID 19 and how you're going to respond to that. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You're yeah, absolutely right. How would, that is
0: a real thing for, for, for us.
1: Curious about, the, yeah, how is, I mean, obviously every industry is impacted by that, but just give me a little insight in how, what are you kind of seeing as, as monumental changes and it's not going to be the same once this is all over in the entertainment industry. Anything stick out?
0: I think that the, I mean, look, depending on how long this thing lasts, which I just can't imagine will be, you know, more than six months to a year before we figured out something. I think the entertainment industry will be fine. Uh, I think that uh, it's a lot of people are getting hit now because all production is halted. And there's, you know, and, and I think the problem is that people don't get, entertainment industry largely pays people for work. Not most people aren't on under long-term deals for anything. And so I think there's been a, a very serious hit to the community, the entertainment community, which, um, you know, the nice thing is that the entertainment community has really stepped up to take care of its own. I, I think you probably read Netflix allocated a hundred million dollars to keep people working. They're paying their crews who have been laid off. They're paying them uh, because they're unable to shoot their, their productions. And I think that's extraordinary. And, you know, Netflix is, you know, you asked me who my mentor is. I don't know that I have an individual mentor. That's been more meaningful than just the, the entity of Netflix to us. They've been so wonderful. And Ted Sarandos who leads that place is like, talk about bestful and kind and, uh, and a good human there's 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 no one like him so you know they they've they've sort of led the charge and i think i hope we'll follow but it's but it's hard i mean nobody's nobody can do what we do it's like uh, you know the same with athletes who can't play sure. their game and singers yeah. who can't do their concerts and comics who can't stand on stage i mean it's we're all we're all suffering for
1: it yeah well what's next what are you what are you looking forward to i mean i look at um i just want to let you know my teenage daughters um they for a year almost they were trying to get me to watch the oa and so that was one oh, of their fav- favorite shows i loved collateral beauty too I, I thought that was a great movie thank you i, I liked collateral Beauty.
0: I, I loved that movie too and it's funny because that was the um antithesis of spotlight right where right. The, the the community embraced spotlight and the community rejected Collateral Beauty. <laughs> right, and I think right. for similar psychologies, although, you know, Collateral Beauty was, you know, one of my, I'm most proud of that film probably of anything. I think it's a, just so powerful. And so many families who lost uh, children um, wrote to us saying that there's never been a movie that captured what that was for a family better than this one. I just think, you know, people, people didn't want a sad movie right I
1: now, think you're right. Moment. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I don't know so, why. I love, uh, I love the, I love the performances in it. I love the story, and I I like crying in movies anyway. But I, that's just me. My wife doesn't like it. She doesn't like stories like that. But I just love to. I love, I love well, it when a you. movie takes over my emotions. So anyway, I, I just wanted to let you know I liked it. So
0: I really, I really thank you. That that means a lot because that that's one of the most underappreciated movies that I've ever been in. But yeah, for me, what's next is you know we're gonna. Con- continue making shows we're making just finish another season of Dickinson yeah uh, for Apple great show and we're very proud of that thank you so much and we have a a couple of movies coming out later this year and we we are you know also involved in a lot of other businesses and part of why I started the company was not just to be a film and tv producer so but really to leverage media relationships and strategy to brands and and, in other capacities so you know, we are—we uh, have a lot of different divisions within the company. I mean, in addition to having a book imprint and doing unscripted and scripted television and film, we're also, you know, in the gaming and esports space. We are working with other brands like Time, and we've created a, a joint venture with the Mandela family to start a media business uh, with Nelson Mandela's name. And so we're—we're we're doing all kinds of things. And for me, it's really just about how do you uh, use the power of influence to to deliver a message. And I think brands having made commercials for brands for many, many years at anonymous content, I saw a huge disconnect because brands would, would call production companies and say, here's, here's the commercial that our creative agency wrote for us, go make it. And what was interesting is that you were having people who don't really connect with audiences, create things to connect with audiences. And so I, 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 Started built this company on the premise that if you come to people like me and other storytellers that I can populate into the mix, we can help you connect to the masses. And so we've had a lot of success with brands um, coming to us, and uh, some of the biggest brands in the world, and, and some even some startups. And we're we're helping them with their message and ideating towards you know how do you move your brand or your product into the zeitgeist. We really saw the power of that with 13 Reasons Why, right? This was a show we did for Netflix. Selena Gomez wasn't even in the show, but when just by virtue of the fact that she was talking about it in her social channels, I mean, the show became a, a massive hit. And, uh, you know, that was sort of a turning point for me when I saw, well, you know, why, why are we not harnessing that power for brands, I mean a TV show is a brand. So yep. Why aren't we doing it for, you know, other companies?
1: Well, I love what you do, man. I think you're one of the good ones and and the content you do is me- you it so is much. it is meaningful and uh, you're doing great work. You're surrounded by great talent. Um, you're representing great talent. I just think you're 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 doing some great things and I look forward to see what you're doing in the future. How can people learn more about your company or get in touch with you or or connect with you in any way?
0: Um well, there's there's all kinds of press on us all the time, and uh, we have a we have our website, but it's it's we took it down to redo it, so it'll be up in a couple of weeks. Sugar twenty three dot com. Instagram is at sugar twenty three, and uh, although we you know we try to be as we're, we're a little bit uh, internal focused in that regard, but uh, we want the the people we work with and the brands we work with to speak for themselves. But sure. we're there. You can find me.
1: Right on. Be tenacious, 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 and, they, and, and then tenacity. That's right. It's been a thrill to have you on the show. I, I'm honored to have you in the Dose of Leadership circle. I hope we can continue this conversation and have you back again. I think that I, there's so much I could talk Anytime. to you about. But this this was great having you on. Thanks for coming on. It's
0: my pleasure, and I really appreciate your time and for inviting me here.
1: You bet. That was such a fun conversation for me. I really do appreciate Michael coming on the show, and I hope to keep, him, keep in touch with him and learn more from him. And I just think he's one of the great ones out there learning about the tenacity of the no-glass ceiling piece, you know, making sure that everybody leads a significant, productive life, the intentionality behind it, the humility that he has, but he has a level of intensity about it, the type of leaders that we all should be, intense, but coupled with a humble, teachable spirit. And that's the type of leadership that's so needed, especially right now. Hey, do me a favor, your call to action, if you really like what you're hearing a dose of leadership, reach out to somebody. Tell a friend, a family member, a coworker, somebody, let them know about this show. It's through your word-of-mouth efforts that this show continues to grow, and I really do appreciate it. And if you haven't done so, please take the time to subscribe, rate, a review, write a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. That helps me as well. Thanks for being a supporter of the show, and until next time, make it a great one.